I'm still reeling thinking about Randy saying that he runs with Satan all the time. Yeah, that's like something you'd hear from maybe NWA or Tupac. That's an incredible line. Hello and welcome to All the Way Through, the podcast going through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out whether we love him as much as we thought we did. My name is Matthew DeMiles and I'm joined by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm feeling very festive right now. But I should feel festive because this is the Christmas special. It is. Maybe we should just all put our Christmas trees up anyway, since nothing else is really going on. For some context, this is in the midst of lockdown we're recording this. I have seen that suggested, that people should just embrace that this is kind of like Christmas. I'm all for it. I am wearing a full Santa outfit, obviously. It's quite warm, a little bit sweaty. How about you? What are you wearing for this Christmas episode? I've gone for a full Scrooge outfit. Very traditional, uh, historically researched. So I feel extremely Christmassy. But also I feel like I am the negative spirit that needs to be quelled at the moment. Because uh, this was the Louis Theroux Christmas special. And the festive spirit was not with me from the very beginning on this one. It's called Weird Christmas and it is a weird episode, even for Weird Weekends. Yeah, and also, it's the last in the series, the last of this Weird Weekend series, the first one. And to honour this, Louis reunites a number of his favourite characters from across the other Weird Weekends so far for a Christmas gathering in New York, where they have a number of days, five days to Christmas, to try and bond as a team. Would that, would that we say that's the main goal? Yeah, they're meant to be learning about and embracing each other's differences. Which involves a lot of confrontation some crazy hijinks. Essentially, this is every Channel 4 series that has existed for the last 10, 15 years. <laughs> this is where it all came from. This is where it all came from, because this is still 1997, which makes this pre-Big Brother UK, I believe, Yeah. where the idea of throwing together a bunch of misfits and then recording their reactions was kind of stapled into the British psyche. But Louis was doing it two years before. Interesting that you should say that because I have something that I will save for the end of our analysis of the episode, but is relevant to that. Hold on tight. So like you said, it's it's 1997, New York, where Louis Theroux is living at this time in Brooklyn before it was cool, or I guess it was probably becoming cool. I think if you're a BBC journalist living there... It means it started to become cool. Yeah. This is not the kind of industrial Brooklyn. I don't think he was surrounded by shipyard workers and blacksmiths. If he was, though, he'd make a big deal about how he's got a sore back, so he couldn't really help them. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, work shy Louis strikes again. My first thought on this episode was, do we really believe the timeline on it? Like, Did these people really spend their actual Christmas with Louis Theroux and each other? That is a good question. I... <sighs> Well, one of the things that comes up a lot is the idea of religion, which plays a huge part and almost becomes the overriding theme of the whole episode. But none of these people have a very traditional religious background. So maybe Christmas is not a big deal or not something they would put some time into their lives for. That's true. That's a good point. So Alex, who is our cast of characters that have been assembled and where do we find them? We find them on top of the Empire State Building. Of course, where, I mean, I was going to say every good movie starts. I think it's Sleepers in Seattle. It's not the Empire State Building that ends on, is it? It's in Seattle. But there is yeah. at least one film that ends 
or starts on the top of the Empire State Building. Well, the one that ends on the Empire State Building is King Kong. <laughs> that's not what I was thinking of. <laughs> but yeah, maybe that's comparable to this episode. Let's go with that. Well, it is because this is a group of, of, of outsiders finding themselves in a big city that they don't know. True. So it's kind of like a Marvel film or whatever. Louis assembles the biggest cast of characters from the episodes that we've seen before. So we welcome back to the stage Randy from the Televangelist episode. I'm going to heaven. Want to come along? You remember him. Mike from the Survivalists. To be fair, every single man in that episode was called Mike. But it is Mike who lives in a whole underground Mike. He is dragged out of his hobbit hole in order to be a part of this adventure. JJ from the porn episode, who was the one that looked about 12, still looks about 12. And then there is the promise of a mystery guest who will be revealed on Christmas Day, but we're not told who that's going to be. But, I mean, there's only one episode that isn't represented, so you guys can maybe figure it out. Yeah. Louis describes this as a cultural experiment. Again, I'd probably describe it as trashy reality TV. Is the timeline true? Are are these people willing to spend their Christmas Day with Louis? And if so, what does that say, not only about them, what does it say about Louis? In his book, I remember him talking about this episode and about how he was feeling particularly lost at the time that they filmed this. And I think that probably comes across a little bit in the way he acts. For example, in this sort of opening scene, his anxiety is off the charts that you can tell (laughs) as soon as they get started. Like It reminds me of me when I'm organizing anything, he is so stressed out about getting these people into a minivan. I kind of appreciate the idea because I think I am someone who finds the idea of crossing streams when it comes to groups of friends a highly anxious thing to do. I find that so terrifying that it won't work out. Is that just me? No, no, no. And like family events as well. Like when it's older people because i feel like with like younger people you probably get away with it people are generally pretty polite but like you get like an old uncle who maybe has like one or two too many drinks and says something to someone else like that could be horrendous and i feel like this is that times a thousand yeah your older uncle is actually a man who hasn't been in a city for the last 30 years (laughs) exactly and your rebellious nephew is a porn star (laughs) And yeah, we're going to put them all in a van together and get them to sing carols. So what could go wrong? What could go wrong? And that is the thing Louis says as he wrangles them all into the back of a a van. And then he ends the scene by saying, I'm already worrying about this. Is this going to work in the most staged bit of dialogue I have ever seen in a documentary? He also um, (laughs) says in the voiceover, it's great to see my friends again. And again, that's it's very forced, like, oh, God, please just let nobody say anything that really, really offends anyone else. We cut to the first day, which is scene one five days before Christmas, December 20th, we're told, where we're discussing the fact that it will be group activities plus individual tasks for Mike, Randy and JJ, which very much feels like the plot of a, some sort of computer game. The first task is to dress up as Santa's in aid of Volunteers of America. Yeah, so it's a bonding exercise, quite nice and fluffy, dress up, go out, collect money for charity in New York in the lead up to Christmas. Sounds pretty fun, pretty easy going. Randy kind of makes things a little bit difficult. 
Volunteers of America, I was interested to see that they have a slightly Christian element, which I thought was an interesting choice for Louis to go along with. They are a split movement from the Salvation Army. I mean, maybe this makes it even better then that it's an organisation with Christianity at the heart of it, that when Louis explains that everyone's going to dress up as Santa Claus, Randy says... I'd rather put a, a, a Saint Claus suit. <laughs> okay. He talks about how the idea of Santa takes away the attention from Jesus, whose birthday Christmas is, and therefore he is not a fan of Satan Claus. No. And Mike, interestingly, nods along with this, I noticed. Yeah. Mike just seems to kind of go with the flow. There's something about Mike, and I think this comes up a bit later. He is a master diplomat. He is so diplomatic, it's painful. When told the task, JJ, our young porn star's response is, it sounds like something I would never do. And then Mike, (laughs) who obviously understands the concept, says, well, that's the idea, man. Yeah, exactly. I know. Mike just gets it. He's cool. Whatever. He'll do it. But Randy is very much against it. Yeah. So Randy and JJ actually united here, possibly for the only time in the episode, in that neither of them really wants to do this. So obviously Louis then insists that they go and do it. He asks, does this mean Randy won't do it? But he's in. He says, I run with Satan all the time. He just ain't got a red suit on. Which is a great line. It is. Louis in his best kind of commanding dad role, which he later takes on fully. But this is very much young Louis testing this out. Says, if we go along and it looks totally stupid or offensive, then we won't do it. Which is a fair point. Yeah. He's given himself an out there, really, I think. Interestingly, Satan Claus was the title of a 1996 low-budget movie. Do you think Randy saw it? Well, this is it. I, I can't help think that maybe he was scarred by this viewing because the blurb is, on the night before Christmas, a serial killer dressed in Santa Claus suit stalks the streets of New York looking for blood. It seems this madman is building the perfect Christmas tree using people's bodies, I think, is, is implied. Oh, I kind of want to watch that. I don't really even like horror films, but... Thank you to awfulmovies.org, which provided me with that blurb. (laughs) Okay, so they go to Volunteers of America and the unsuspecting lady there, who's uh, presumably a a good Christian woman, then gets a massive lecture from Randy about Satan Claus. This is one of my initial issues with the documentary so far okay so louis kind of states to this woman who is called deborah that randy is is uncomfortable and has some sensitivities randy looks a little bit embarrassed but it feels like there was a clever edit in this where it looks like louis is is telling randy to stop on several occasions while he is just continuing to rant this woman which i think is actually probably a little bit unfair yeah and Anyone who's watched the series so far knows that Louis is always stirring the pot. Oh, absolutely. So there's no way that he was holding Randy back. So you think this is the first sort of Big Brother style character assassination? This is more like the modern day sort of reality TV, which kind of cuts scenes together and then leaves an edit. Like in first dates when they were on a date and then someone will say something and then they will cut to the other person just eating their food as if they've said something absolutely terrible which you can tell was from 30 minutes before when they were just eating their food. It turns out that they only need one Satan clause and then everyone else gets to dress up as elves. I'm inverting commas because they've just got like hats on and fleeces. So Mike volunteers 
to be Satan Claus. Sorry, I'll, I'll volunteer. I'll be I'll be Satan Claus. And he looks the part. Obviously, with the beard, it's a a natural fit. But Mike, with large groups of people, he's incredible. He does so well. The kids love him. The mums love him. He's standing for pictures. He's collecting money. Mike really steals the show in this scene. Yeah. And in the end, they raise nearly $300 for charity, which is pretty good. Yeah. And then while they're out there raising money on the streets of New York, Randy is still going on about the Antichrist. And Louis says, We've got to stop talking about that. That's bringing me down. (laughs) But Randy insists that he still wants to be a member of the team when Louis thanks him profusely for agreeing to come out. The thing I noted is... Louis is incredibly touchy with Randy. Yeah. He is constantly holding him or caressing him. (laughs) Again, I don't know if this says something about where Louis was personally at this time, or maybe a big part of his personal anxiety is that he needs to touch people to make sure they're okay. I'm not sure. He's definitely out of his comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah, he's freewheeling here. The next scene is Randy's personal quest. Randy's day. What happens on Randy's day? Randy wants to convert Manhattan. The one thing we established from Randy in the previous episode was that he would go on a mission of conversion using bumper stickers to try and convert people with his slogan, I'm going to heaven, want to come along, and then a number which people ring, and then they get through to Randy who recite them a Bible passage. This was his original strategy. This is where we left Randy. He's moved on. He knows this is a big city. He's, he's taken on the Big Apple. So his plan is to use balloons instead to fly them over Manhattan and convert people this way. The height of technology, balloons. Randy is a man ahead of his time. He's thinking, how can I get to a mass audience quickly? I'm often being converted by passing balloons. So (laughs) That's just the modern day now. Everyone is being converted (laughs) by balloons. But there is an issue. Of course, there has to be an issue. And the issue is JJ. JJ is not comfortable with being part of Randy's day. So Louis takes him for breakfast to discuss the sensitivities. And this is very Kardashians, isn't it? For Louis to take JJ aside and get him to bitch about Randy so that all of us can hear it and then feel super awkward later on when they have some fun confrontation. We find out that JJ is from a Christian background. He talks about how his parents were quite pushy. He says, my mum is so annoying about it still. So JJ is politely excused from this mission. Which says a lot because Randy was willing to go run with the devil himself. But JJ won't go and send some balloons over Manhattan. He won't run with Jesus. I do feel bad for him with his mum and his parents situation. But equally, if his mum was like, I love your porn career and I'm putting all your pictures on the fridge, it'd be more disturbing, wouldn't it? So JJ is out. He's not going to take part. And then we find out that Mike believes in a new age religion, which is called the Course in Miracles. It was started in 1976 by a woman called Helen Schumann, who wrote a book. The underlying premise is the greatest miracle is the act of simply gaining a full awareness of love's presence. No one can be offended by that. That's very, very mild. Here we go with the interesting bit. The author claimed that the book had been dictated to her word for word via inic dictation from Jesus. Cool. No messing around. Yeah. This is serious. One of the main teachings of Mike's religion is the physical world we appear in was not created by God, but it's an illusion of our own making. It is a manifestation of our false belief in separation. It is literally a dream we are dreaming. 
This is the plot of The Matrix. I suppose it sounds a bit like The Matrix. This is The Matrix. So everyone is just part of one dream and actually we're all one connected presence. But we don't know we're in this dream, except the people who believe in The Course in Miracles. So Mike seems quite normal, but actually he's mental. Well, he's essentially the one. He is Neo. (laughs) But it explains a lot about Mike's kind of path in life, which is I just want to be nice to everyone and fairly harmless. Mike does ask Louis if he has any spiritual beliefs of his own during this, which is quite interesting. Louis' response is... That's a tough one. I'd say yes, but not really. If he didn't want to talk about it, he could have just said, I'm not going to say. Mike's reply is, that's about as an evasive an answer as a man could give, which is is really fair. But then I kind of looked into this and Louis later in interviews with other people describes himself as an atheist. Is this some sort of attempt to steer the BBC neutral line? Yeah, I feel like he's maybe trying not to piss anyone off as well. Like he doesn't want anyone to turn against him if he says yes or no to anything. So then they start talking about The Course in Miracles and Mike is asked whether he thinks Randy would be interested to hear about it. His response is that Randy would probably wig out to hear about The Course in Miracles. (laughs) Mike's hippie language is just so dreamy in this. Later describes a woman that he might fancy a bit as groovy. (laughs) He does indeed. So they go down to the waterfront in, in Brooklyn, I guess. Yeah. They get the balloons all sorted. 500 balloons they're going to release over Manhattan. And Louis, ever helpful during these kind of situations, just fannies about with the helium, really. And does Randy's catchphrase with a helium balloon. I'm going to heaven. Want to come along? <laughs> Randy loves this. He's really into it. There is no question that Randy is his target audience and it's gone down a treat. But they do eventually actually put some of the helium in the balloons. And then they do a weird thing where they have two people carrier vans and they fill them with balloons and then drive them ceremonially slowly along the water's edge to then release them further up the water. It's a weird sort of A-team vibe. They kind of open the doors on these people carriers and release the balloons over Manhattan. Except the wind's blowing the wrong way. Yeah. 500 balloons doesn't look like that much. No, but it's quite nice. And and the fact that they all work together in a kind of cohesive unit is the main thing here, I think. Then Mike, in his ultimate politician way, says, it was a great day. Anytime you spread a spiritual message, it's of worth. And then Louis says, I like seeing balloons go up. (laughs) If Louis was your friend, you'd be like, mate, are you okay? That's a man who's had no sleep trying to put into a conversation, isn't it? And just coming out with the most base thing that they could think of. I do feel like Mike could have been president. He just has the right answer for everything. Yeah, he does. And I think we kind of see Mike's gravitas around other people a little bit later on. It's Mike's turn in the spotlight next, in fact. It is. December 22nd. What's the premise of Mike's day? So Mike's goal while he's in New York is to make it as a folk singer. We've already seen his skills in the survivalist episode where he came to serenade Louis in the morning when Louis was really hungover. And he was actually pretty good. I thought he had some guitar skills. A little bit of like a Bob Dylan-y type of vibe. Louis has used his contacts and found, I guess, a recording studio and a sort of producer type. She seems to be able to do everything. Singing tutor and musician herself called Gig Lizzie, who Mike is going to go to and then he's going to become a star 
One of the things that I found really funny was that Louis meets Mike on the street to kind of talk him through the premise. It's like a setup for what's going to happen. He just rambles and then says to Mike, sorry, I'm not making any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Mike will just do anything. So he's like, yeah, fine. Sounds good. They go up to the studio and we're introduced to Gig Lizzie, as you said, who is this multi-talented woman dressed very 90s, I would say. Yeah. She's reasonably young. I'm hazarding a guess here, but maybe 30s, early 30s. Yeah, I'd say so. Bear in mind that Mike, he's got to be like 50s. <laughs> Look, Mike could be 25. No one knows that man's age. <laughs> 25 to 60. <laughs> Louis hints at Mike's age when he says... So, Gig Lizzie, can I give you the pitch on Mike? You know, he's, he's, uh, he's, not, he's no spring chicken, but he's the real thing. He's from Idaho. He dropped out in 68 and he never dropped back in. Do you know what I'm saying? Luckily, though, just at the point where you think Lizzie is going to turn her nose up and not be a fan, she reveals that actually she's an environmentalist and she's super into Mike. She nicknames him Mountain Mike because he lives in the mountains. And I think it's safe to say that there's a good bit of weird, possibly sexual tension between Mountain Mike and Gig Lizzie. Yeah, there really is. They do a number of vocal exercises and then she takes his photos for his publicity shots. And it's probably the most sensual scene so far in Weird Weekends. And I am including the porn episode in this. There is far more affection and warmth in this scene between Gig Lizzie and Mike than anything we've seen so far. Louis looks really disturbed throughout all of this. Then they kind of leave Mountain Mike in the studio while they go behind the producer desk. I've noted there is a white man in a do-rag. I want that on the record. There is a white man with a do-rag and I don't know what to do about that. But Mike is nervous. He is. He keeps kind of messing up, which is fair enough. Well, this is a man who's lived in a hole for the last 40 years and now he's suddenly in a studio in New York being asked to perform his songs in front of strangers. Louis, as the ever um, loyal friend, slams Mike he absolutely slams Mike. So bad. Like, he really gets into the character of being the bitchy talking head in Keeping Up With The Kardashians. He asks Lizzie if musicians can get famous without talent. <laughs> and he shouldn't pursue something that's not going to happen, is Louis' advice. And then he very, very bitchily soon after that says, I thought it was great, Mike. It's crushing to see Louis like this about Mike. But if Louis's not a fan, Gig Lizzie is with him. So she goes into the studio when Mike is kind of struggling to remember the lyrics and perform his song. And she says, you're here for a reason. God put you here. And then she kind of massages him <laughs> and tells him he's beautiful. Oh my God. I have written in my notes, what in the utter fuck? <laughs> <laughs> because this is bizarre. It puts a spring back in Mike's step, is what I'm going to say. After recording their songs, they go to the Triad in New York, which is a kind of gig venue. Hang on, you've missed the best bit. Oh, sorry. Which is that leaving the studio, Louis and Mike discuss Lizzie, which is when Mike describes her as a groovy gal. That's right. And Louis says, oh, I think she might have liked you. And Mike says, oh, I think she might have a boyfriend. And Louis says, so, no, she's getting divorced. Oh, she's getting divorced? Yeah. Oh. So obviously we're we're shipping Mike and Lizzie a lot right now. Yeah, Mizzy, as we all know them. I kind of thought we might not find out how things went. But then, next scene, as you were saying. Mike's got a gig. Gig is stretching it, isn't it? 
He's got a slot on what seems to be an open mic. But they make it out to be a big deal. So he's backstage with Louis and Gig Lizzie, who continues to caress Mike as he prepares. She also looks incredible. I've now changed into what she's wearing in this scene, which is <laughs> a long zebra coat. So 90s, it's amazing. And a crop top, if I made that up. Yep, and a crop top. It's very, I'm going to say Nelly Furtado, Gwen Stefani. Yeah, kind of Spice girls as well. Beautiful. They're kind of preparing. And this is where you realise that on the second viewing... Gig Lizzie is the weirdest thing in this Weird Weekends episode. I think we should try and find out what she's been up to. I had a, sc- a scout round for her. And I found a Twitter account called Gig Lizzie 1234 which has only been used 19 times, last time in 2017. I'm not sure whether it is her, but I'm surprised if someone is faking being Gig Lizzie. Her first ever tweet was, in all caps, The beat will never die because it's in our hearts. Stay live, my songbirds. Hashtag musicians, hashtag songwriter, hashtag courage, hashtag gig Lizzie, hashtag billboardy, hashtag love. Oh my God. And her Twitter ends abruptly in 2017 with a retweet of the Dalai Lama. <laughs> That's so perfect. Yeah. She is quite a motivational character, despite being incredibly weird. It works for Mike because he gets over his stage fright and his gig is actually really good. Well, his solitary song that he plays is actually really good. It's quite dour, but it's it's nice. It's very folksy. The other guys from the team, so JJ and Randy, have come to watch. And JJ seems to be getting really into it. And then, obviously, afterwards, Lizzie reappears to congratulate Mike and touches him again a lot. They absolutely probably went home together that night, didn't they? There is no other logical answer. So far, Mike's day has been the most successful. So we move on. It's the next individual task. And if this is JJ's day, December 23rd. And the idea for JJ's day is that he's on a photo shoot. A soft porn photo shoot is how they describe it at one point. Soft core, I think. Sorry for not knowing the terminology. I'm down with all the porn lingo. I will say that this is like the bit in Take Me Out when they've run out of budget. So while other people are off skydiving or on jet skis, they just get like a horse and carriage ride around the Isle of Fernando's. This is that section because JJ's clearly had no budget spent on this. They have a photographer who is his friend to take some shots of him, essentially. The photographer is a character and it is excruciating to watch. Morbidly fascinating. First, they kind of talk through what's going on. And Louis explains to the group, as he's done with the other task, what is happening. Randy is worried it might be ungodly. He's probably right. Spoiler alert, Randy. Yes, it is. (laughs) And even Mike is nervous. And in one of my favourite, favourite points of this whole documentary, Mike asks, do I reserve the right to leave? A fair question. JJ replies, absolutely. While Louis, at the same time, interrupts and says... Don't be silly. Don't pretend you're a Christian. (laughs) What? Louis had enough. He's not willing to be the diplomat he once was. I think Louis might be at his wit's end. The photographer does a little bit of chat before they get started and explains that, sorry, they, they have gotten started, but Louis asking why the photographer is holding a bit of a tree up in front of every single shot, which looks ridiculous. And it's because it's a peep show shoot. So every photo is designed to look as though someone is spying on a couple. Why there are so many fir trees in the middle of a pavement in Manhattan, 
I'm not sure. Yeah, I haven't seen this much foliage in center parks, let alone in downtown Manhattan. JJ and his female colleague who's appearing in this shoot with him. They're kind of meant to be a cute couple that are going Christmas tree shopping together and then things escalate quite dramatically until they are um, simulating having sex on the edge of a waterfront somewhere. Interestingly, Mike thinks the girl in the shoot is cute. He mentions that a lot. Foggy Lizzie. Already she's been forgotten. While they are kind of shooting some of the early shots where they're holding hands and walking around Manhattan. Randy is using the time to go preaching. Yeah, he's just converting people in the street. They kind of leave this busy street and go down to the riverside again. Is this the same spot where Randy's released his balloons? I don't think so, but it looks similar. And then they start to get naked. We see JJ's rear end. Yeah. Randy at this point is in the car. He's not willing to take part. Fair play to Randy though, because he is obviously very sceptical. He could have just said, you know what, I'm not going to appear at all. Leave me be, as JJ did to him. But he stays in the car. He's not not there. And he's not there shouting anything either. No, he hasn't said Satan Claus once at this point. He's just jogging with Satan at this point rather than running. But Mike gets quite into it by the end and is quite happy to watch JJ get his bum out. Him and Louis kind of stand watching until it's kind of hinted that it's, it's all getting a bit too fruity. And then they head back to the car. It's all over and done with before you know it. And JJ returns to the fold for a bit of a dressing down from Randy. Yeah. So this is when we get into what is one of the first theological debates that happen, which comes up again and again and again, and seems to be the one controversial point between all of them. If there is something that they are going to fight about, it is religion, but it only seems to be religion. The concept of hell gets brought up and JJ says if hell exists he doesn't care he'll go there (laughs) to which Randy informs JJ that he is spiritually dead it's pretty brutal I feel like that would hurt that would sting yeah but at this point JJ is the moping teenager who doesn't want to do anything with anyone Randy could basically be his granddad in order to kind of try and resolve the situation Louis asks if JJ would accept Jesus for the team because that would be great this does not happen. JJ does not have some sort of mad conversion. And there's a moment where JJ says that he doesn't believe in religion. And Randy does a double take moment and says, well, Christianity isn't a religion. It's a reality. Randy's not even willing to discuss other religions, it feels like. It was probably a good idea for Mike to keep the Course in Miracles thing to himself. <laughs> yeah, Mike's now glad that he did that. So to take the edge off this situation that Louis tried to make better and made much worse, he suggests that they all sing a Christmas carol together and trying to find one that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus in it, but that Randy will sing about because it's not about Satan Claus. They settle on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The rest of them sing it and JJ really, really doesn't enjoy it. And this seems to be louis's only way of trying to make them bond is just to keep making them sing where did that come from well i suppose the fact is that he he always carries his acoustic guitar with him everywhere so maybe this is he sees music as the great unifier it's not working for jj as we will find out (laughs) so on christmas eve they go to do some more singing as a bonding exercise So this is with choir master Jack Goodwin, who was brought in to give their singing some sort of professional treatment. He looks like an undertaker. He does. And he 
seems to be treated like a therapist when Louis takes him aside to inform him in great detail of why the gang aren't getting along well with each other. And Jack, the choir master, is there like, uh, yeah, okay, what am I meant to do about it? JJ keeps insisting that he doesn't sing. He's really angry, very frustrated, but kind of in like a, a little boy way. Yeah, it, this is a strop more than it is a fuming anger. This is very much a teenager strop. Mike tries to give him a pep talk and says, you're an actor. An actor does anything he's asked to do. Come on, you've just got to embrace it and do it. The thing is as well, JJ is someone who has sex in front of strangers. That's his job. And yet he is so obviously self-conscious about singing. In the end, he doesn't even do any singing. He just pretends to conduct them like a choir. Which is therapist slash choir master Jack Goodwin's olive branch. He suggests that this would be a good role for JJ. Jack is clearly a man who's dealt with stroppy teenagers before. (laughs) So they hit the streets of New York and they do quite a bit of caroling together. This is a very nice sort of Home Alone montage of New York. It feels so false and weird. This is the end. We close this scene with JJ still not being involved. And also with all the cuts around New York, JJ's in about a third of the scenes. It's possible that he gave up and went home, which would make him the person that was involved the least. So actually the guy that you would expect to be quite adventurous is actually the biggest killjoy of them all. The big day finally arrives. Christmas Day. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas, one and all. Merry Christmas, everyone. Welcome to Louis Theroux's Brooklyn apartment. I couldn't say for certain which bit of Brooklyn Louis in here. It's a brownstone. It's got like a parquet floor. I'm going to say he's Williamsburg. This is a Billy Berg sort of apartment to me. I think my favourite feature of Louis's house is the TV fireplace, which is a very small television with a wood fire on it, which is placed within a normal fireplace. You get that on Netflix now, man. That was well before its time. There's not that much in Louis's apartment. No, but it is a good size. Yeah, that would be a bomb for rent. Now you'd probably get like 10 people living there. So the singing has not worked apparently because Randy and JJ are no longer speaking. Which I just feel like must have been really awkward. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's Christmas Day. They pop the champagne and they drink a lot of champagne. (laughs) Just standing up in the living room all facing each other. Louis says he has travelled a lot this year. Which is true. He has just completed a very interesting series. He does a classic Louis of getting quite tipsy, I think, quite fast, which I always enjoy. The the kind of speculation about the mystery guests continues. Louis spoils the surprise and tells his guests that the special guest is, drumroll, it's E.T. Elvis himself, Reverend Robert Short. You'll remember him. We are ready to transmit. He is the human transmitter for the planet Coldus. I was surprised that he agreed to be in this. He didn't seem like the most flexible person in the UFO episode. This is true, but I'm sure Louis did say that he paid him kind of $10 and he would perform his transmission. So I think a free trip to New York on the BBC was never going to be turned down. Do you want to know what the residents of Coldus are called? Yes, please. Coldassians. This is keeping up with the Cardassians. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Sadly, Robert Short passed away in September 2019. He had a good run. There is a blog called Chasing UFOs, which does a very loving tribute to him. 
But he is not a welcome guest. Before he's even arrived, Louis sort of does the big reveal. JJ seems really excited and, and very into UFOs. We finally found something that perks JJ up, which is great. On the other hand, Randy immediately says he'll have to be excused because channeling is demonic. Which Mike is clearly annoyed about because his Course in Miracles belief is all about a woman channeling the spirit of Christ. And then Robert turns up and Randy stays for a little while before the channeling happens. Yeah, they have this weird exchange where they are almost like mirror image versions of each other, except that Robert has experienced drugs. And they have kind of arguments again about theology and on religious scripture. So Louis, in an attempt to try and calm them down, suggests that Reverend Robert Short could channel Corton, the being from the planet Coldus, and then Randy could try and convert him. Nobody's a fan of that. They both hate this idea. Before Randy leaves, because he will not be in the same room, he starts singing hymns, which is a very alpha male move, because Randy says that now, because he is blessed this area, Corton will not be able to be contacted. He also speaks in tongues, which a pedant might argue that that's kind of channeling in some ways. But who am I to say that? Randy goes off. We should say with his wife. His poor wife doesn't really get a look in in this whole episode, but she is there with him. So they go off to wander the streets of Brooklyn. And everyone else sort of prepares themselves for Robert to channel the alien. Robert has his wife with him as well. But it's not the same woman as was with him in the UFO episode. Is it not? I noticed that it's not. So there's some scandal going on there, I think. Well, look, we don't know the religion of coldest. Maybe it's a polyamorous society. That's true. You could have multiple wives. Or maybe one is Corton's wife and one is Robert Short's <laughs> wife. So Robert does the whole central control spiel again. This is central control. This is central control. Stand by. Only this time it's even more satisfying to watch because Mike and JJ are absolutely pissing themselves laughing. They are like children in church. I can't imagine how I would react if I saw him do this in person, but I think it would probably be like that. And then from Corton's mouth, we get predictions. Predictions that JJ's life will change in the next four to six months when he gives him the initials MJF. Which Louis suggests could stand for Michael J. Fox. And then Robert's wife agrees that he probably should move into acting as it's a much safer career. So presumably he just went and gave Michael J. Fox a ring right after that. And this is how his life changed from then on. And then Louis, again, just, I, I guess, maybe wanting to make things a bit more interesting, asks if Corton is satanic. And the reply is, We are only committed to that which is um, Almighty God, Father of Light, Sam. So that's a no? Yes, Sam. It's probably a worse Christmas day than anyone's had really, but it is almost like a big family gathering that's just gone incredibly wrong. But there is some jubilation because after the scene where we see Coldest channeled, Randy returns, drinks are had, there is some dancing, and we see a brief shot of Louis moonwalking. Yes, Louis's got moves. Finally, they all sit round the Christmas dinner table. And Louis got everyone presents, which is quite sweet. That was very sweet. I hope that he bought them and wrapped them himself. I hope he didn't send some poor runner or whatever out to do it. There's an attempt to do a nice toast 
to sort of bring everyone together <laughs> and in trying to find something to toast to that will not offend anyone they attempt to agree that love is the greatest force but randy's not having that god is the greatest force and then again we're lost in theological scripture robert short tried to say that god is love but um randy's not having this no and they have a big fallout again but what do they eventually toast to louis makes a toast to everybody there in the end that's yeah a very neutral to friends i think and then they close the episode singing white christmas which is touching. The way the episode actually ends, though, is Louis packing everyone into a taxi and waving them all away. And then just the sigh of relief as Louis <laughs> lets his body relax. Everybody is gone. He doesn't have to deal with them anymore. That's like a very relatable post-family get-together feeling. Yeah, that is a satisfaction you can only know having shut the door on your entire family, isn't it? So in some ways, it was actually quite a, a relatable Christmas, I suppose. No channeling has ever gotten on on my Christmas days, I, I don't think. Well, yeah, you meant just have, you know, nipped out the toilet or something. Well, it wouldn't be Christmas without a present. And we have got one hell of a present for you in this episode. Our interview is with none other than Jeffrey O'Connor, who is an Academy Award nominated director and writer. But... You might be interested to learn that he was also the director of the Weird Christmas episode of Weird Weekends. In total, he directed five episodes of Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends and went on to make three more documentaries with Louis, including Louis in the Brothel and Surviving America's Most Hated Family, which is probably one of the most controversial Louis Theroux episodes out there. Jeffrey kindly spoke to us from his home in Manhattan about his time making Weird Weekends episodes with Louis. He debunked a lot of our assumptions about the episode, told us a few behind the scenes stories and also let us in on the episode that he's sad they never got to make. So without further ado, here's someone who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to Louis Theroux documentaries. My name is Jeffrey O'Connor. I'm a documentary filmmaker, the senior producer on Weird Weekends, and I directed the pilot for Weird Weekends, which was porn. Although porn showed as the second film, because it was a little controversial, it was actually the pilot. It's where we kind of defined the style of the series. I think the first question probably is, how did your relationship with Louis begin? How did you first meet him? I was a producer and director on Michael Moore's TV Nation, but there was a kind of a revolving door of talent that came through there, and there were a lot of very, very talented people. And one day, Chris Kelly, who's a writer, on the show, he was a lead writer, said, look, I'm gonna bring in this guy that was like on Spy Magazine, he worked there, which was a downtown, very popular sort of hipster magazine for the time in the 1990s. And that was Louie and he came in. He was just like really funny and really smart, but he was a writer, but he got kind of drafted into producing pieces. And I was immediately struck by his potential for comedy. We became friends, you know, we got to know each other. And then we did a piece together called Avon Ladies in the Amazon, which was very, very popular and exceedingly popular in the UK because it was a BBC Sony production. And the, so the show showed simultaneously in the UK. We kind of tested out some of the early ideas of participant journalism. Obviously the Weird Weekends concept was about experiencing strange cultures when did that become evident that this was something you were going to explore with Louis? Well, after 
TV Nation finished. We actually worked on one or two things together. We were hanging around a lot. But because of Louis' popularity with the British audience, the BBC offered him a series right off the bat. And he invited me to come in as a director. So Louis had this idea of subcultures. And I had the idea of expanding on the participant journalist model of storytelling, of narrative, using it as a device to engage him with the story in the exploration of the subculture, and at the same time to kind of subvert the idea of the correspondent, of the TV, TV correspondent, to have fun with it, but to satirize it as well. It worked in a kind of double-edged fashion because the people we were participating with were thrown off guard and the viewer was thrown off guard at the same time. So with Weird Christmas, obviously, this is a slight different avenue compared to the other Weird Weekends that come before it. Can you remember how this episode and the concept about it came together? This was like the early days of, it was almost before reality TV. So these ideas were sort of out there and floating around and we had to come up with a Christmas special. We really didn't know what we were going to do. And I don't know who it was, but somehow the idea of appropriating this early format of bringing people together just started to sort of bubble in the gestation process. So we decided to pull one person from each of the shows. We had no idea how it was going to go. It turned out okay, but it was really kind of fly by the seat of your pants every day because of the personalities. Did you actually film the week of Christmas? Yeah, I think we filmed on Christmas Day. We were just double checking that that was a real and not an illusion. No, no, no. We actually, and it was Louis' apartment. There were no setups there. So we filmed on Christmas Day, yeah. And Corton, he came in late. He couldn't, he had a, a conflict, but then he came in and uh, he delivered. He was a surprise guest. That was quite, that worked out, yeah. Who was the most kind of malleable in terms of being up for the concept and who was the most difficult to deal with? I think they were all like malleable and difficult at the same time. Each of them had their quirks. In a way, Randy was the most game for it because I think he saw it as an opportunity to reach more people with his message. But they were all kind of curmudgeons in their way. Corton had to like negotiated a certain number of hours that he had available and when he would come in and when he would leave. And I remember that being a bit of a negotiation. I guess he had a busy schedule channeling aliens from space and, and only a short window for us. But in general, there were no blow-ups. There were no tizzy fits or psychological breakdowns in the course. Everybody got along. And that's a tribute to Louis's personality that he, you know, is a genuinely nice guy and people pick up on that. If you're asking people to sort of go to the limit on something, you know, whether it's a long shooting day or a probing question, they do it for them. So some of the conflict between JJ and Randy specifically, was, was that maybe exaggerated for the documentary? I mean, I don't think any of them would really put it on for the documentary to exaggerate. That's who they are. You know, the interesting thing about JJ, who we're both still in touch with him, it comes out in the documentary, I saw this clip today, 
he had a religious upbringing in the Midwest. I think he's from Missouri originally. And so he had a real difficult time with religion. So those conflicts between he and Randy and Randy trying to impose his moral Christian messaging onto JJ's life are real. Those are real. When I use the term reality, it's not like reality today, which is like you feed people lines. It wasn't like that. All we did was construct this idea that people come to New York City and do what they normally do. That's the extent of the device. In retrospect, I, you know, I feel comfortable about what we did in the show. I don't feel that we were exploiting or manipulating anybody. Were there any moments that stood out to you as particularly memorable or did any of it take you back to filming? There's this one sequence where there's the porn photographer with the branch. This is the, how we were sort of just, again, flying by the seat of our pants. JJ came to town. He says, I'm going to do this gig with this guy. I know him from like Vegas or someplace. I didn't have enough time to meet him. I had met Gig Lizzie. So you're able to, in those situations, you're able to vet people and figure out if they're going to work. But this guy, I was only able to talk to him on the phone. So I called him up. And, you know, within two minutes, I knew I was, we were in good shape. I could just tell over the phone at this point. He completely personified his career. You know, this is who he was. This is what he did. This is all he wanted to do. The little branch thing was, I just thought, absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's something that you just couldn't write. Was it quite an exhausting film to make because it was in such short succession, like in terms of the days? I think it's true in the film to the days. You have to also realize that for Louis, each of those people are, you know, they're really interesting, they're really nice, but they're challenging personalities. And, you know, Louis had to deal with those challenging personalities every day and had to sort of engage them and sort of move the team, you know, around New York City. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I think we wanted to show what Louis was going through as well. He's less of a participant in this piece, I think, right? Uh, than in the other weird weekends. So he's more of a conductor of sorts. If you were to do Weird Christmas again, <laughs> what would you have done differently looking back on it? Or what would you have kept the same? Uh, that's, geez, that's a really interesting idea. I kind of wish Corton had been in earlier. It would have been a lot more fun, but... Um, it also, it might have been a bit more challenging to deal with him. So in hindsight, I actually think it's a really good thing that he didn't show up at the end. I think four people would have been too much. I'm not sure what I would do differently, and I'll tell you why. Because I feel like Louie and I went to the furthest edge of what we wanted to do in terms of imposing a structure onto reality. We never repeated that model because I think that instinctively we knew it was a one-off. Being in situations where the unfolding reality and capturing that unfolding reality in terms of its dynamic with Louis as a presenter was much more interesting than the presenter imposing the reality. 
I think in the UK, Louis was quite quickly figured out as the guy who could get anyone to open up to him by pretending to be the sort of daft journalist who asks the dumb questions and then gets people to be themselves on camera. And I always wondered if that's why he did more work in the US, because people weren't quite as clued into that being his tactic. Yeah, I mean, I think the initial work in the US was really motivated by the proliferation of, of subcultures. There were just a lot of subcultures out there. When we were in the development stage of Weird Weekends, we reached out to a lot of different subcultures, some of them UFO subcultures. And we got a package on a Monday. It was opened on a Monday, but it had been delivered on Friday from the Heaven's Gate cult. And they basically sent us a notice saying, thanks for being in touch of all the media groups that we want to be in touch with and let you know that we're going to commit suicide. You're the one group that really, really want to be in touch with. The problem was it was addressed to an associate producer who was out sick on the Friday and we didn't get the package until Monday. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a, a crazy story. That was the decade of Waco and Heaven's Gate and Ruby Ridge. There was a lot of craziness going on domestically in the U.S. For some reason, it was a real incubator. Was there ever a concept that you had in your mind or that was suggested that you would have liked to have made but but never got to with Louis? Oh, yeah. There's one piece that still to this day, I think, it's too bad we didn't do this. I always wanted to do something like a profile of a dictator, Charles Taylor. He was the ostensible president of Liberia. I mean, he was a ruthless dictator. And we had approached him and he said yes. And we were going to spend a week with him. Now, that would have been a really kind of challenging piece within the Weird Weekends format because he was a very bad man. But he was also an egomaniac. And so egomaniacs, you know, if you look at subculture, who runs cults? Egomaniacs run cults. Usually they're dark, narcissistic personalities. Those personalities serve you well when you're making a film. So we were all ready to do it. And I remember being in London over the summer. I think we were going to try to do it in the fall. And we found out that two BBC journalists had just been kidnapped in Liberia by Taylor. And they were being held captive because they were sort of news reporters. And they were doing a story about Taylor's dictatorship. And he had sent somebody into their hotel room and confiscated their notes and read their notes and decided to throw them in jail. And at that point, the BBC pulled the plug. So we never went back to it. A couple of years later, uh, Taylor was overthrown. But I think that would have been an interesting piece. It's a little darker, but we had the green light. He said yes, the BBC was willing to do it. It just got shot down. Good Louis or bad Louis? Is this a successful Louis escapade or is this a less than successful attempt to, to, to branch into the weird? What do you think? If I'm keeping up my high standards and, and a sense of honesty, this is bad Louis. It's not terrible Louis. I don't mean that in the sense that I hate the episode, but the strange staged aspects, the slightly forced controversies and the constant obsession with religion gets quite grating after a while 
I agree. I think it's bad, Louis. But I don't feel bad about saying it because, and this is my reveal, he actually wrote about this episode quite extensively in his autobiography. And I remembered it and I went back and found the quote. And Louis himself thinks this episode is bad, Louis. Does he? So he writes, No one likes to dwell on failure. In certain self-actualization philosophies, there's an expression, there's no such thing as failure, only feedback. He says, I'm not sure that's true. But I do think failure is often more interesting and revealing than success. Second-rate works, pieces that don't quite come off, are more likely to reveal how they're done. It's like watching a magician perform a trick badly. And he goes on to basically say that the Christmas episode was a failure. That's so interesting. He says that people, when they talk to him at parties, after that series had aired, they would always say, yeah, I loved it, but what was the deal with that last episode? (laughs) He said his response to someone was, well, you weren't really supposed to enjoy it. It's more of an avant-garde piece. And then relating back to what you were saying at the start of this podcast episode, much later, David tried to claim that we had invented the Big Brother format two years before the fact. No way! Which, given that we had no house, no rig, no public voting, no evictions, plus me in it, was a bit of a stretch. But I (laughs) applaud him for trying, and any residuals to which I'm entitled can be forwarded to my agent. That's incredible. If we are being philosophical about this, Louis is totally right. By seeing the kind of episodes that don't quite hit the mark, it makes you realise that actually getting the ones that do work is really difficult. That balance between people with really normal domestic lives and really strange beliefs or kind of existences is so incredibly interesting, but couldn't happen every time. They're, they're, that that takes work to, to organise those sorts of scenes and find the right people. I think what's nice about the rest of the episodes is the the realness of them as well. But then to take them out of that and try to pit them against each other like, I don't know, novelty wrestlers or whatever, it's it kind of cheapens it and it makes it even more obvious that they're being made fun of. I think this is the first episode we've properly dubbed Bad Louie. It's maybe a bit of a downer, but Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's okay to be a failure because it only makes you stronger. Look at Louis. Failure is actually success. That's what he said. You can learn from it. This is all an illusion anyway, as Mike would say. You're in a dream. This concludes the Christmas episode. Please go drink some champagne and see if you can channel an alien after that. And uh, we will see you next time, next series for season two of Weird Weekends and season two of All the Way Through. May Corton bless you all. Angels on your body. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at allthroughpod and we're always around for a chat. See you soon.